like the more that's that gaining perspective and love learning thing so i think that it kind of rolls into the way you roll i think when when you're that's uh that's kind of the mindset you have so i love that so one of the things that i have been thinking a lot about and and we did this in my leadership course last week actually and i was very pleased with how it turned out is how thinking about wisdom rather than just naturally having it or developing it over time or whatever but actually thinking about wisdom can help us with dilemmas and and, and so i love to talk about this Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show is our final episode of the Intellectual Humility mini-series with Shane Snow. Shane, I know this week we're going to be talking about the stuff of wisdom. Can you can you give us a quick preview on that? Yeah. So we've been talking throughout this series about intellectual humility and how it can make you smarter, help you make better decisions, how it's a strength that we, we don't appreciate as much as we could. And in our other mini-series, we talked about lateral thinking and this idea of smart cuts of thinking differently and and how hard that is, but how useful that is. And both of these concepts kind of roll up into this idea of wisdom, at least the colloquial definition of wisdom, you know, making better decisions, being wise. That's something that, you know, we ought to aspire to. We revere people who have wisdom. But what I wanted to talk about today as we wrap up this mini series is what does it actually mean to be wise? And when you look throughout history, across all cultures and all time periods, there's always been this wisdom thing, this character that cultures look up to for that is wise, you know, that makes great decisions that you go to when you're facing something hard. And and more recently, in you know, the last 10, 15 years, positive psychologists have broken down the concept of wisdom based on all of, you know, kind of the universal idea of wisdom and, and broken it down into pieces that I think makes it easier to understand how we can get better at it. So I want to talk about that and I want to talk about how intellectual humility ties into that. And and maybe we can start actually with a question for you, Jess, which is when you think about the wise mentor figure in like an adventure movie in a movie like star wars or harry potter or lord of the rings or hunger games in this hero's journey there's often this this trope this character that's the wise mentor you know it's yoda obi-wan dumbledore gandalf what what comes to mind for you that these wise mentor figures in these stories kind of all have in common well besides the british accent so there <laughs> it helps yeah but just you know they're typically older they're more measured they've got kind of a gravitas when they speak they're they're more patient they're more observant they're less brash less impulsive less likely to jump into things i think that for me when you think about them there's this it's almost kind of like a whole way of being that's like a measure twice cut once kind of kind of approach i don't know yeah it's uh, and I love the word gravitas because that that's such a good way to to put it. People respect and listen to the wise person because they are they're pretty sure that what they have to say is going to be important and that's going to be a function of you know the experience that they have. That's why they're often you know older figures. They they've seen a lot, they've done a lot, so they've learned a lot. But this idea of being measured, I think, is a is a key part of it. So when I think about that, I think about what these 
TV or, you know, storybook mentor figures always do with their young adventure? What is it that they're training them to do? And there's lots of things that go into this hero's journey. The one pattern that I notice that I pay attention to is they, they seem to almost always be trying to train this young adventure character to overcome their natural instincts, to do things differently. And so, you know, Bilbo Baggins in Lord of the Rings, his natural thing is he, he's kind of a scaredy cat. He wants to stay home or is comfortable and, you know, and eat food. And, you know, he has to get over that and go out of his hometown and overcome his fear and his laziness. You know, Luke Skywalker has to overcome his natural impatience and his desire to solve things immediately. Harry Potter, he has to learn to trust his friends. This was a kid that, you know, grew up an orphan, traumatized, and, you know, and Dumbledore teaches him that he needs to, to trust other people and to get other people to help him solve problems. And so, you know, this isn't the only thing that's afoot in these stories, but I like this idea that the mentor, the wise character, is helping the, the other characters overcome their natural instincts. And this is, I think, a hallmark of wisdom. We have all sorts of instincts that sometimes serve us and sometimes don't. And taking time to think about how we feel, what's going on, to analyze the situation and then make better decisions, that's part of what it means to be wise. So we, we talked about in a previous episodes around ego, about this idea of who's in charge of your ego. You know, the, the dog, the 10-year-old kid, or the wise grandma. You know, are you ready to bite someone in order to get what you want, are you thinking real short-sighted like a 10-year-old would, or are you thinking like in the long-term like the wise grandma would? And you know, the key word there is thinking in the long-term. So I like to think about this when I think about what it means to be wise and how we as leaders, as you know, workers, as business owners, you know, as investors, whatever it is that we're doing, how we can be more wise in our decision-making. And this is where we come back to this, what positive psychologists describe as the breakdown of the elements of wisdom when you look across history. And there's, there's kind of four things, and they'll sound familiar if you've been listening to this whole series on intellectual humility. First is perspective. The wise person looks at things from different angles. They have more perspective because they have lots of experience usually, but they seek out other perspectives. They don't just go in with their own assumptions as the, the way to see things. They have this curiosity, or I like how this is described, a love of learning. If you love learning, then you're going to listen to the ideas that you don't agree with. Or you're going to, going to want to learn more about the people you don't understand or the things you don't understand. You won't make a decision without learning, but you're going to love learning so much that that's, that's going to come you know, as part of the package of making decisions. Then the third one is uh, is creativity, which, as we've talked about, is is really a function of how much you can draw from. Creativity is connecting things. It's uh, making something new by combining things that weren't combined before. And the more stuff you have in your head to combine, the more perspectives, the more you learn, the more creative you can be. Uh, so it's an application of that. And then the fourth thing is what's described as judgment or good judgment, which is the idea that you make decisions case by case, you weigh all the evidence, you analyze things, you don't make snap judgments. You don't make decisions based on quick rules of thumb. You actually weigh things out in their individual circumstances. That's what a wise person does. That's what these, you know, the legend of King Solomon, you know, and, and the, the baby, cutting the baby in half. I don't know if you, you ever heard that one. It's like this classic like Bible story of, you know, the, the two women come in and they're, they're arguing over which baby, the, this one baby, then, you know, they both say that they're the mom and, you know, baby was in the hospital. The other baby in the hospital died and this one is their baby. And King Solomon says, well, I'll just cut the baby in half. 
that's a huge gift. And, and one of the, the ladies says, no, no, don't kill, let her be. And he says, you're the real mom. And that was his sort of, you know, this is, again, sort of a, you know, a legend, but that was his uh, hallmark of the wise judgment, learning, knowing how to solve problems by looking at things in unusual angles and, you know, and, and trying to get the information you need. Anyway, all this is to say, you break down something like wisdom and you look at all these stories, like the ones that we're talking about, of anyone who's described as wise, and you see this. They look at things from multiple perspectives. They are keen to learn. They love learning. They're creative about how they approach solving problems. And then they use good judgment and, and don't come into situations with a bias for already thinking they know the answers. They, they want to learn the answers. And they know that a wise person is someone who knows they don't know everything, which I believe is the definition we've been working with intellectual humility. So thoughts so far, Jess? Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about, I've spent so much of my life trying to be an entrepreneur, reading about entrepreneurs, interviewing entrepreneurs. And I look at, I look at the massive success that you've had in, in not just your journalism and, and book writing career, but, but as an entrepreneur and, and how big contently has gone. And, you know, you were nice enough to uh, invite me to take your leadership class that I took last week. And I'm, you know, I'm meeting all these people from all over the world. They're signing up to come learn from you. Right. And I guess my first question is, as you think about who you chose to be the kind of wise people you were going to take advice from through the, the many decisions and ambiguous situations contently had, one of my first questions is who you've looked up to for wisdom. You know, not only this successful journalist writing for Wired and these, these great magazines, Fast Company and best-selling author, but... Your tech company, Contently, is a massive, massive success, and it it shows that you have likely paid attention to some people with some wisdom to navigate the uncertain circumstances of inventing a business like that. Can we hear some stories about some of your mentors or people that you thought of as wise? Yeah, so there, there are a few people that have been kind of lifelong mentors, and then there are some people that were have been short-term mentors for me. And the, the first one that pops in my head was a, someone who mentored me for a couple of years early on in Contently, who I, I got paired with him at an entrepreneur event for Techstars, and, and after meeting with him, I, asked, I begged him if I could come to his office and ask him some questions. And, and then that turned into basically a standing meeting where I would come and he and his chief of staff would, would just tell me all these stories and help me think through things. And his name's Charlie Kim, the CEO of Next Jump, and why I was so intrigued by, by him and, and why I think he has a lot of wisdom is he started his company in the 90s during the dot-com boom. They originally were a bit of a competitor to Amazon, and, uh, and it, it grew into a really big company. Then there was the, the bubble burst, and he had to, he and his chief of staff had to lay off like hundreds of people. They got down to only like three or four people left in the company in order to keep it alive. And then over a period of about 15 years, he built the company back up to where it was before. Now it's a, it's a much bigger company, but a much more sustainable company. But because he he had gone through that experience of this massive growth and, you know, gobbling up, you know, cash and the whole dot-com thing, and then had to fire hundreds of people personally, and then build it all back up in a much more sustainable and difficult way. He had learned the ropes. And uh, so those are the kinds of people that I, I've sought out when I've, you know, even when it's just short-term mentorship, you know, short-term advice, or, you know, as a journalist wanting to learn things, I, I like to look for people who have been through stuff. 
And, and so, you know, and, and some, some of it also is you look for people who have mentored other people. Another one who comes to mind who was another short-term mentor in my life that actually helped me a lot with my, my latest book, Dream Teams, is Keith Yamashita, who is one of the founders of SY Partners, their consulting firm. But he was Steve Jobs' CEO coach. Uh, he coached Oprah. He's a guy that kind of behind the scenes doesn't toot his own horn. He's not someone who you describe as you know, ultra famous. But, but for a reason, because he's, you know, he is behind the scenes helping people be more wise. And, and he's one of those people that I think embodies this idea of perspective. And he, you know, he takes the, the, the long view on things. He actually, really tragic story, he had a stroke a couple of years ago and, and had a really, you know, hard time recovering, he had to relearn how to do everything, you know, as, as often happens with that sort of thing. And he made a basically blogged and 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 recorded audio of his recovery process to help other people understand what you know what that process is like and understand what their loved ones are going through when they have strokes and and also I mean you see in this series that he did just his amazing wisdom but also it, it he it, I mean it, it's it embodies everything that we're talking about with this. He used his having a stroke as a learning experience and a teaching experience, not as I think what a lot of us would do, which is uh, as a, you know, a, a major setback that we try to get through. He saw it as a way to get better. And so that's the kind of person that I think is, you know, it, it says all of those things that we're talking about, these, these components of wisdom. Plus he's got hair like Gandalf. I just looked him up. <laughs> oh Yeah. And he, I don't know if he still has the beard, but he used to have this kind of long, stringy beard that he would you know, pull on like like he's a, a wizard. Uh, so, so he looks the part, too. So let, let's go back to those people. Let, let's talk about this. So with Charles, can you think of any examples? Can you think of anything that you were facing and you went to him and then you thought, why didn't I think of that? Or are we going too far back? I'm putting you on the spot here. No. So he's the one where I got the, I, I went to him with a question around hiring and uh, we were like 10 people. And I think I've told a version of this story before. We're like 10 people. There were eight men who went to Ivy League schools and two interns named Lauren. That was our team. And, and I was concerned about the, the conflict between hiring people who fit our culture. We had a great time together. Everyone loved each other. We had a great, you know, fun culture of being very similar besides our two poor interns. You know, so we, we had this very, we all love video games. We all, you know, we go out to the bar after work every day. It, it's this very homo homogeneous culture. And uh, so I went to him with the question of how do we keep this good culture going while also not cutting off our options from a diversity standpoint? You know, I, I want people to fit the culture, but I, I don't want to be in the position where the best candidate for a job looks around and decides that she doesn't fit in. So we don't, you know, we're not able to hire the best candidate. He one that told me, you got to stop thinking about culture fit and start thinking about culture add. And that that was a game changer to me early on in, in the company. And you see that, you know, throughout all of my work with Dream Teams. And, you know, it's a big component of the way that I think now. And that is, once again, the definition of, of wisdom is seeking out different perspectives. He, he's the one who taught me that if you already have a perspective well represented, then getting more of that perspective only makes like more of a like a fun party to talk about the things that don't matter. What you want is someone who's bringing perspectives that you can't see so that you can prevent your boat from going over the waterfall. And actually also the party gets funner when you have different people bringing different things. So he's that's the big one that I got from him. You know, isn't it interesting when you think about wise people? how often we go to them with this problem and they end up saying, 
Yeah, 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 Jess. But what I think we actually need to talk about is that you're asking the wrong question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's funny? Earlier, yeah. Well, this week, this week, I just had David Kidder on the podcast, who's an investor in Contently. So oh, we, yeah. we yeah, geeking it. out that we both knew you and stuff. And I was asking for advice about our investment fund and stuff and, and things. And he didn't really answer the question I asked. But what he did answer ended up completely shifting a, a big approach of what we're doing and helping. And it drastic, like this like sales pitch of going out to investors with, it really turned into these long conversations for me and my partners over the last few days. And we cut our sales pitch almost in half. And we pulled it back to like the simple things that illustrate the, the, the track record of the guy who people have to have the faith is going to put their money in the right places. And it's, it gets rid of the mm -hmm. details that don't matter that and all these things. And I, I was like excited yesterday because I showed it to the first two people and I'm batting a thousand on it so far. Right. Amazing. But I was really annoyed at the end of the conversation that he didn't answer my question. He didn't like the way I was proposing it because even though I was asking a question, I was mostly hoping him to be like, Jess, you're a genius. I couldn't possibly think of anything better, right? That's what I'm secretly hoping for. But instead, he's like, you know, he doesn't, he answered the question I should have asked instead of the one I did ask. And it was like mm. drastically helpful. Any thoughts about that? I love that. Yeah, it makes me, you're, you're bringing me back to another mentor figure that I've had throughout my, actually first my journalism career, but what you still keeps tabs on me is uh, Ava Sieve, who's a business professor at Columbia, who I took her business media business class. And, and throughout the years, I, I come back to her class and, you know, and uh, talk to students and she checks in and, and helps me with my business problems every once in a while, just for the good out of the goodness of her heart. But her one of the things I think about with with great people who are actually trying to help you, you know, like a wise person would, I feel from her, unlike so many other people that, that give you advice or that tell you advice, that she actually cares and that I have her full personal support. And and because I'm so convinced of this, because of all the little things that, that she does, it's okay for her to really tell me what I need to hear, even when it's painful. And so it's the, the kind of person who, you know, sometimes the, the sort of support you need is like, good job, keep going, keep working on it. Sometimes the support you need is that ain't going to work. And here's why, or, you know, here's the big problem with your business idea that you should go and figure out how to solve. And when you get that level of honesty with the level of care, that's, I think, a magical combination. Because you get that level of honesty from someone who you don't think cares, you're going to discount it. You're, you're not going to want to hear it. You might get defensive. But with someone who does care, it's much better. And, and a lot of times, someone who cares a lot will, you know, they'll want you to succeed. So they'll want your idea to succeed. So they'll say, well, you know, I think this has some problems, but like, you know, maybe, maybe it could work. And that's, you know, Mr. Miyagi is not doing that to the karate kid. <laughs> you know, he's not saying, you know, maybe, maybe this, this weak kick of yours will work. He's saying practice more. He's saying, you got to do this the right way. You got to do this the hard way. So that's what comes to mind with your thing with Kidder is, you know, him not telling you what you wanted to hear, telling you what you needed to hear. That's, you know, that's, that's classic wizard. It's like the, the Oracle in the matrix. You see this in all these hero stories, you know, and she doesn't tell Neo the actual prediction, but she tells him what he needs to hear to do the right thing. Well, you know, you talk about that care factor and, and, you know, after the episode was over, cause he could tell I didn't love, I, I didn't have the best reaction. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and afterwards he said, Hey, listen, and, and just set the tone for anybody who didn't listen to the episode. The guy's like sold like $50 million tech companies. He's a 
early investor in Airbnb and SpaceX and, you know, the, the guy, you know, best-selling author. He's, he, you know, he probably has plenty of obligations on his time. He's not, he's not bored looking for something to do is my guess, right? And at the end of it, he, he got what he wanted out of it. You know, he got the chance to talk about his, his book, New to Big, which is great. I'm about halfway through it myself. And at the end, he's like, hey, listen, do you want to have another call about this next week? We don't need to record. Like, let me just give you some time and let's talk this out. And there's nothing in it for him. You know, there's probably good feeling like good feelings of doing service. But I mean, there's no like transactional value for him out of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyways, there was like a signal. It wasn't just like, I'm smart. You're doing it wrong, Jess. It w- there was this aspect of care. Yeah, that's great. You know, and someone like that, too, often is probably thinking, hey, I, I want to help because, you know, I, I care and then I want to pay it forward and other people have helped me. And that's often an element of this. But there's probably also, you know, for him too, is I want to learn about this. Like he wants to learn like in helping, he's getting wiser so that he can help more people too, right? Like the more that's that gaining perspective and love learning thing. But I think that it kind of rolls into the way you roll, I think, when when you're, that's uh, that's kind of the mindset you have. So I love that. So one of the things that I have been thinking a lot about, and and we did this in my leadership course last week, actually, and I was very pleased with how it turned out, is how thinking about wisdom rather than just naturally having it or developing it over time or whatever, but actually thinking about wisdom can help us with dilemmas. And and, and so I'd love to talk about this for a second. Dilemma is a decision where there's not a clear best choice. It's like, you know, there can be a dilemma between two good choices, you know, a mint ship or rocky road, that's a dilemma, but you know, there's, you know, low stakes. There can be a dilemma between two bad choices. You know, you, you have to make a choice, but none of them seem good or two mixed choices, but it's not a dilemma if it's like Rocky Road or starve to death. You know, that's, uh, you pick Rocky Road. And I think that wisdom can help us in these dilemmas, especially when we're choosing between two good things. You know, you're trying to grow the business, two directions it could go, and both seem promising, you can only do one. Or someone makes a mistake and you have to choose between showing them mercy or exercising justice. Both of those are good things. Which one do you do? And, and you know, this is where when I think of wise characters in my life or in history and storybooks, I think they're so good at that. I have this dilemma. We don't know the right option. And, uh, and so what, what choice do you make between justice and mercy, between, you know, midship and Rocky Road? And, uh, and so remember what we talked about a few episodes ago, maybe actually at the beginning of this series, about how intellectual humility is a virtue because it sits on the spectrum between two extremes. You know, one extreme of changing your mind is never changing your mind, being so stubborn that you're unwilling to hear anything, unwilling to ever change. On the other end, the other extreme is gullible. Anything anyone says to you changes your mind. That's not good either. And intellectual humility is a virtue because it sits in the middle. So if you remember that, you can think of any good thing as possibly having that sort of spectrum. Any good thing could be taken too far where it's no longer, you know, as productive. So I think about courage, for example. You know, a lack of courage is cowardice. It's not good. It's not going to be helpful. But an overabundance of courage is recklessness. You know, you drive right off the cliff and then you're no use to anyone. And you can think of this with with moral dilemmas or leadership dilemmas, you know, thinking about this, you know, kindness thing. A lack of kindness is unkindness, but an overabundance of kindness, we, we hardly think about this, but in a scenario where kindness is an option, maybe being so kind that you deny someone the opportunity to grow because you're trying to pr- prevent them from feeling any pain 
maybe that could actually be counterproductive. If you're too kind to your kids, they grow up unprepared for the world. I mean, you should be kind, but you know, maybe kindness is the wrong word. But if you're too, uh, you take care of everything for them because you want to be nice, actually you end up being not nice in the long run. And so when I think about wisdom, I think about this, this idea of when I am facing a dilemma, like a hard problem, what is the, and I have my toolkit of, you know, my heuristics that I've developed. I have my principles I've learned from leadership books. I have my experience. I have my go-to people that I call. And, and if I'm trying to apply some of these tools to a problem that I'm facing, I like to think about, well, a wise person would apply a filter on top of this to, to make sure that we're not going too far with any, we're not just taking the, sh the short, easy way by saying, oh, in this case, always do X. But can that ever go too far? Is there any other principle that we can apply as a filter uh, to this? And, and that's kind of what the wise person, why they take so time and such a measured approach is they say, well, you know, we could just go, you know, go for the bad guys, but, you know, in killing the bad guys, are we going to create some second order effects? You know, if we go and we, we raid the, the castle, you know, with our army, could there be peasants that die? Could there be, you know, loss of life that, you know, that we don't anticipate? Could we do something more creative or could we be a little more wise? Could we negotiate? And I, I suspect that in, in the work that you do with child rescue, that there's this kind of uh, thing all the time that, that they face with life and death kind of situations or, you know, someone's really their life, right? Where, you know, you know, you want to rescue the kids, you know, you want to, to go in there and the bad guys need to be punished. But if you do it in an impatient way, if you just go in guns blazing, so to speak, you could cause a lot of, you know, a lot of problems. And also this is with the justice system in general, right? If we just decide someone's guilty and execute them on the spot, you know, we're not giving them a chance. Uh, you know, wise person. That's why we have judges. They're supposed to be wise and all that. So this is I'm, I'm throwing out sort of different applications uh, of this idea. But I like to I've been lately on this kick that if I want to exercise intellectual humility, I want to exercise lateral thinking. I want to be wise in my decisions that anytime I know I'm facing a dilemma where there's good choices that compete or bad choices that compete or there's possible side effects that, that I want to fit with it and, and apply wisdom filters to the process, apply other perspectives to the process so that I can make sure that I'm making uh, the best choices. Once again, kind of a, a big monologue on that, but I, I'm curious where your mind's at when this is, this is something I'm exploring, to be honest, right? Anyone who's listening, I'm exploring this idea of applying wisdom by breaking it down into perspectives and curiosity and love and learning and judgment and applying the virtue spectrum idea to uh, decisions where good things conflict. But I'm curious where your head's at when you hear this. You know me, I love the stories. I mean, my, my first question is thinking about this book, Dream Teams, which becomes this very well-loved book and probably had plenty of opportunities to just blend in with all the other books that came out that year. Were there any dilemmas that you went to Keith Yamashita about? Is there anything that you remember going to him about a dilemma that, that he either gave you advice or a framework to solve your own problem? Yeah. So a specific one with Dream Teams is I, I came across all of this conflicting research around, you know, Dream Team starts with the premise that we got to think differently if we want to get smarter. You, know, you can't think more. You can't be smarter than yourself unless someone else pushes your thinking, basically. And so dream teams are built on this foundation of people adding different things to the party, harkening back to Charlie Kim's, you know, culture ad thing. So that's that's the where the book starts is going through that. And I, I found all this research that people love to celebrate. 
about how when you have a boardroom that is demographically diverse, you tend to make better decisions. And the theory goes that it's because people who are demographically diverse have different perspectives that they provide on the problems you're solving. So there's plenty of research on that. There's lots of stuff about women in business and you know how it, it can be detrimental to have only men making decisions in business. And I was looking at cops and how when you have men and women paired together in detective partnerships, they do a better job. They shoot fewer people. They have more confidence than if just ladies or just men uh, in partnerships. And it's be in part because of this. When you, you can't assume that you're going to think the same, then you all think a bit harder, a little bit more time. But then I found all these stats that show that diversity programs in businesses and in government tend to lead to higher turnover, that at the non-board level, at the employee level, they tend to lead to more conflict and to, to not better decision-making. And, and, you know, depressingly with the, you know, the buddy cop stuff, I was excited about how all this research is like, you have an old cop and a young cop do better. You have a male cop and a female cop, they do better. You have a gay cop and a straight cop, they do better. And that's, you know, the perfect you know, case study for this. But then I found that when you have more demographically diverse police departments, more people quit. And so I was sort of upset about this, you know, there there's these downsides that I can't sort through. And is, is this, you know, really, is it good for me to be recommending, you know, that we should always be seeking after more diverse thinking, you know, in our pools, because there clearly are, are some downsides. So this was something that I came to Keith with, because he does a lot of consulting on, on this with organizations. And he talked me through this, I, I think this is also kind of classic, like wise mentor thing, the and, like both things can be true. One thing does not negate the other. It can be true that boards that are more demographically diverse do make better decisions and that their companies do worse when the people are more demographically diverse. Both those things can be true. So how can they be true? How, like, like, let's explore how they can be true. And the answer ends up being kind of simple in just that case of those two stats. It's that at the board level, everyone is equally empowered to speak their mind, equally empowered to be part of the decision-making process. At the underling level, often people are not empowered to speak their mind. So if they do think differently, they feel out of place and they eventually quit. Or if they do speak their mind, that is out of place with the culture, which is that we, we talk about things in this way, in which case they get kind of given a hard time and eventually get pushed out or quit, or there's just fighting rather than progress. And so the answer is when you look at the outliers of companies that do excel when they have more demographic diversity, they have the same case scenarios you have in a boardroom, which is that people are allowed to say what they want and they're not punished for it. And they're asked to say things that go against the grain and they're celebrated for that. Just like in a boardroom, you're thanked when you something that no one wanted to hear, but that's important. So that, that's one. It's I, w I wouldn't say it's a dilemma. The dilemma was, do I just drop this topic because it's too tricky? But it was, I was trying to sort through something that uh, I couldn't sort through. And, so, uh, yeah. So what did he yeah, say? He provided that perspective. What? what well, that's what he said. He, oh, he said, he said, so, can't they both be both? That's the point. Yeah. He said, if, you know, first of all, if the, you got to know if the stats are, you know, collected in a, in a way that's accurate and meaningful, which they, they were. And then it was, well, both things can be true. You know, the, the whole formula is not just who's on the team. The formula is more than that. And that was, this is in the early stages of exploring, you know, the, what became dream teams. And so that's why it, it was so crucial but, but that idea that, you know, it's and what more was, variables. Yeah. And what was your reaction then? When he said that, like, why, why was that an experience that's memorable for you? 
it was it was eye opening to me because uh, first of all it made sense. It's like one of those things that's obvious in retrospect, as a lot of good ideas are. And it was in retrospect, I was like, how come I haven't seen this? And then I got excited because it's like, well, a lot of the world hasn't seen this. This is something that needs to be further explored and then taught. This gives me something that I can contribute to this conversation around teamwork that really isn't being discussed in the way that it should be. So that was my reaction. And then my other reaction, this is like maybe my second or third meeting with him. My other reaction was, I'm gonna run every page I write in this book by you, Keith, <laughs> so that you can tell me what's up. And, and actually, I, I'm making a bunch of charts that have ended up in, in my, my courses uh, around Dream Team stuff that, uh, that literally I would make the chart that like these flow charts for decisions, literally like dilemma type decisions. I would send it to Keith and say, what do you think? And every single one of them, he was like, ah, but you're not thinking through these caveats. You're not thinking through these other filters you need to run them through. So, you know, the, the chart that's in with this story is the, do you need diversity on this project? So you're forming a team, you're tackling a project, do you need diversity? And it's actually a much trickier question than just like, is it morally good? Or do you have, you know, do you not have diversity? It's, uh, it's this whole process of, are we looking for novel solutions? Are you looking to, you know, to solve some other problem other than the problem? Are you trying to solve a cultural problem at the same time? Are you trying to reinvent the wheel here? And then if you are, then what kinds of diversity do you need in order to maximize the thinking? And who should you make sure not to exclude? And anyway, so, but all of that is a function of this, like decisions are not, hard decisions are not so simple. There's not a one answer. There's like a whole process. And, uh, and so in some of these things, I, I ended up distilling some of his thinking process of adding on the caveats, adding on these filters, adding on these perspectives in order to, to arrive at a better answer. Did the same thing with, with meetings. You know, what kind of meetings should you have is actually a really interesting question. We often default to our instinct is let's have a one hour meeting where we get together and we talk about this, but actually depending on your goal, depending on the team, there's very different formats. Sometimes you don't even need a meeting. That's going to be a function of, you know, thinking through it a little bit more. So those, uh, that's the other one that comes to mind is that, uh, you know, when should you get people together to think together? What information do they need ahead of time? It's not so one size fits all. Yeah. And all of these for me, it's like mind blowing because I'm like, I should have known that, but I didn't know that because I couldn't see it. And now I do, which I think is, is once again, a hallmark of this stuff. I, the details there make it so much more rich. Like, I love that because it, all of a sudden it kind of cements in my brain and I start thinking through it makes me think about things differently when you say it like that. So staying here on dilemmas, because I think this is one of the hardest things of being a leader. Like something that's great about a follower mm -hmm. is when you get to say, oh, not my problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because you don't right. have the authority to make the choice or whatever. <laughs> and like sometimes it is great to let, you know, to, to shirk responsibility because it's not your authority to make the choice. But, but you know, oh yeah, it's the, you know, part of the reason that it pays so well to be a leader, in my opinion, is... Because even though it's better than the other positions, a lot of the time, it sucks way worse some of the time. Making the hard choices when it's oh, a yeah. dilemma. You're putting up with the crap that nobody else wants to, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. there's so many of the rest of us in the world that have not built a tech company worth tens of millions of dollars. So I, I like we got the dilemma story for, as an author. Let's go back to Contently. What's, is there another time that you faced a big dilemma and you went to somebody, somebody that you considered wise? that comes to mind? Let me think. So there's, there's the big dramatic turning point stories that I, I often tell, and I might've told this one, a version of this to you, but I think it's, it, it illustrates this. It comes to mind immediately with, well, so to back up one thing that I, I think, you know, in terms of application of this, how to solve dilemmas, you know, 
kind of trying to be more wise about dilemmas. We talked in an earlier episode of the Smart Cuts Lateral Thinking series about second order effects and about ask the right questions, which you already invoked. And sometimes the question is, how do we accomplish X without doing Y? And that without any side effects, without doing Y is often the the thing that makes the difference for, you know, for helping you solve the dilemma. It's adding that, that when I say filter, the filter is often the without doing Y, without any side effects. You know, how do we save the town without killing any, any of the civilians? That, that sort of thing. So I can tell like, very specific example of this was we were having basically with part of our business was we were brokering work for writers and editors and people who are hiring them, content marketers that want, you know, an editor to run their blog. And part of our business was selling software. And in the writer client scenario, we were basically having these dilemmas around, will they go around us or not? How do we make sure that the writers don't go around us once they meet the client? And because we wanted to make that money in the middle, we also knew that we needed to provide some value in the middle or they would go around us. And, and we to actually increase our take in the middle because we were doing so much work in supporting this but we were like, if we increase from 10% to 15% or 20%, we might piss some people off and they'll, they'll just say, well, I already know my you know manager over there at Pepsi. I'll just go sideways. So we're worrying about this. And, and so the question really was one of these more wise questions. How do we recoup our costs that we're putting into this supporting this writer network, this talent exchange, so that we're not losing money or we're actually making money and not uh, – have the writers go around us you know how do we do this without any negative side effects and it was it was quite a pickle for a while and i'm i'm trying to remember if anyone specifically yeah actually so we we talked to a bunch of people a bunch of our advisors but one of them was scott belsky the founder of behance which is yeah massively successful company sold to adobe for 150 million dollars they were a a network portfolio network for designers and he was really big on, you know, doing right by the creative people. Like that was a big part of why we started Contently. And I remember talking to him about basically this idea that there's a list of things that are hard for creative people that go beyond what our business was. And, and we can help solve some of those things. Then that can give them a reason to work with us even if they're cut. So we made that list of, you know, what are all the other things? We're getting them work. What are the, all the other things that are hard? You know, promoting yourself, marketing yourself, building a website with your portfolio. If you're a writer, you're probably not doing that. We'd already kind of started down that road, but Scott helped us figure out that that was a big component. If we we made this very easy, type in places you've written for and all of your work around the net, you can drag and drop, make a cool looking website portfolio. With his help, we did that. But then we also, in analyzing it, we said, well, writers, we figured out, well, these writers, they get paid after the fact. They have cash flow issues. You know, you, 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 one of the reasons you wouldn't go to Pepsi is because they're going to pay you three months later, like they do your agency. So what if we actually pay these writers and editors up front? What if we paid them early? This created another problem, which was a cash flow problem for us, which we then solved. But you know, the, the solution we had is we'll pay you as soon as you're done with the work. We're not going to make you wait three months. You can cash out with PayPal like 10 seconds after you submit your project. Even if you have to do revisions, we'll let you cash out now knowing that we've done right by you. So you're going to do right by your clients. And and this, it was game changer. It was transformative. People told their friends like crazy. That was when we started getting a huge boost in signups. People told their friends like crazy that, hey, here's a place where you can do freelance work and get paid immediately. It forced our competitors to all make that change too, because uh, you know no one wanted to 
to get paid three months late now. But it was it was a product of this discussion of and 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 we're able to charge you know to take a proper percentage you know in the middle and have that help fuel our business and recoup our costs. So there's a question of you know how do we ensure that we're getting paid for the work we're doing in the middle of this transaction without people going around us ended up being a really good question that the without people going around us led us to do some more things to make things better for our users, which made our business stronger. And it wasn't the straightforward answer to the question. We did more. We ended up doing bending over backwards even further, but it made our business even better. I love that story. And I think the last thing maybe, and this can be more of a wrap up as we we had to wrap up this episode, but what was it about, you can choose the question here, either what was it about Scott that made you actually trust advice or what do you think Scott has done differently to have the wisdom to be able to help you with that dilemma? Yeah. So he is a relentlessly curious person. And I think that gives me a lot of confidence in someone that they will at least give me will help me think. And and that's just one of his salient traits. He's really curious. When we would meet with him, so he was a, an advisor and an investor in the company, but when we'd meet with him, he would take notes the whole time. So he's listening, but we can see he's paying attention. And he'd take these handwritten notes and he kind of doodle them too. And so you can see him processing what we're saying, which is cool. And, uh, and that's, that gave me confidence, right? That like, this guy is actually really thinking through stuff. But also, I mean, I think he, I'd read his book, you know, that he'd written about getting work done. And, you know, and he, they had an amazing blog that he wrote a lot for about creativity. And I think seeing into his thinking process through that gave me confidence. And I, you know, there's, I think a lot of thought leaders out there that are doing, you know, they're writing for marketing purposes and that's fine. That's great. But you can tell when someone is kind of being more intellectually curious in that process, they're, they're trying to blaze some new territory. And he's one of those people that, that just, you know, stands apart for, for that. So I think that was a big, big deal. And also to your gravitas point, he takes his time to answer things. You know, you ask him something and he's he's making notes and then he thinks about it, even to an awkward length of time sometimes. And then, you know, he gives you an answer. And I, I respect that a lot. You know, it's just, I, I'm the kind of person that likes to fill the silence, you know, and someone who who's okay with the silence because they're thinking like that, you know, that, that says good things. I love it. Well, this has been such a fun mini series for me. I hope somebody else liked it too, but but I think it was great. It was great for me. What do you, what do you want to close with? What what should we end with? What's a good thing to leave people here at the end? So if you go to my website, shanesnow.com slash IH for intellectual humility, that's where you can get to some big articles I've written, tests you can take. And also I have an upcoming book project that, uh, that you can be the first to hear about. And we're also going to link out to all these episodes and, uh, cross promote some stuff there. If you want to really dig into the topic, it'll all be there. So definitely go do that. But I, I think in general, I would challenge anyone who's been listening to this to try to notice instances of intellectual humility throughout your life, throughout your day, when people change their mind, when they're willing to admit they're wrong, when they're willing to consider things that other people aren't. Try to notice that and express gratitude for it. Call it out. I think the more that we can kind of as a culture, as you know, a society, or just as people, start to recognize and put some value on that and, and call it out, express gratitude for it, the more we'll slowly start to develop this sense that intellectual humility is a strength that, that we should be focusing on because it really is. I love it. Well, thanks again for doing this series. It's been, it's been great. Oh, it's tons of fun. And I, I suspect that we'll be back with more stuff for anyone who isn't sick of, uh, of hearing my voice. Already. But, uh, but for now, thank you. Uh, thanks to everyone who's listened. That's great. Bye, everyone.